I think about this very, very fine line between being charged up enough to do what you need to do and calm enough to do it well. Welcome to the ShakeOut Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Mental health has been an increasingly popular and important topic of conversation over the last couple of years. Many athletes have used their platforms to share personal experiences with mental health struggles and the resources that have helped them. This week, I decided to do the same, right here on The Shakeout. Over the last 18 months, I've engaged in something called neurofeedback training with a practitioner named Ava Walters-Coot. This therapy has had a drastic impact for me, especially on my athletic performance. In this conversation, I chat openly with Ava about what neurofeedback training is, about my experience with it, and why it can be so effective for athletes of all levels. Hi, Ava. It's so nice to see you on my Zoom screen. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's nice to see you too, Kate. Well, I'm so glad that we could finally get you on the ShakeOut podcast. You and I have been working together for almost a year and a half now, and we Mm -hmm. finally connected for this interview, which is great. So you're a neuropsychotherapist and a social worker, and you're a co-owner of Psych and Soma, your practice here in the GTA. But let's just start off by getting to know you a little bit better. Maybe you can give us a snapshot of your career and and your work thus far. Okay. So um, I've been a registered uh, social worker for almost 40 years, I think. And um, during that time, I've done a whole bunch of different things. Where I'm at in my career right now is, I mean, I've been in private practice for about 30 years. And the practice right now has evolved in such a way that it's sort of what we call a somatic-based practice. So that means most of the work that we're doing is body-based. And that has kind of evolved over the years. And some of that may be talk therapy, some of that may be some of the other methods we use. But the idea is that we understand what's going on with people in a way of working, accessing that material through what's going on in their body. And and that's evolved over a number of years based on the current research and the development in the field. So that's, so mostly I see lots of um, people who have trauma histories. I see lots of people who have sleep disorders. They could have migraines. They may have a variety of symptoms that we all, all of those symptoms now we may, we understand as dysregulation. And uh, in some of the description of, um, you know, your, your brand and your philosophy on your website, you talk about focus on the nervous system's ability to heal itself. And you also talk about using an integrated approach to mental health performance and improvement. Maybe you can tell us more about about those two things, the the nervous system and that integrated approach. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, So I think that uh, any of the work that I've done over the last 40 years has um, convinced me more and more that we do have the capacity to heal from things. Uh, we have that physically. I think about that when I have an injury. I think about how can I support my body to do what it needs to do to heal, which is something that your listeners may be a bit familiar with. Um, <laughs> and I think that's true also psychologically, that our nervous system is interested in regulating well. It's always looking for ways of regulating better. But what happens is sometimes there are things that get in the way of that. And it could be early trauma. And, you know, by early trauma, we might mean anything like a separation or an illness or 
a death in the family early on. I mean, often it's through no fault of the parents, for example, but it's circumstantial. Um, some of it could be temperament. Some of it we inherit certain wiring. But our nervous system is always working towards regulating better. That's what it wants to do. And so what I'm interested in is a couple of things. One is educating people about the nervous system. I mean, I have people who come to me who've been in therapy two or three or four times and say, nobody's ever talked to me about my nervous system. And I, I believe that to be true because I think when, when I did my training years ago, we didn't, we didn't even have the words for nervous system really. It wasn't something a social worker would ever think about. So I'm very interested in teaching people about their nervous system and so that they understand what kind of nervous system they have and how best to work with that. Because I think what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another person. And I also think we don't get much of a vote on the nervous system that we have. I mean, I think we can be frustrated and disappointed and angry, but it's a little bit like saying, I don't want my eyes to be brown. I mean, they are, you know, we have to work with what we've got. And some nervous systems are much more sensitive than other nervous systems. And, you know, that can make life more difficult. It can be frustrating. But, you know, as I often say to people, if we get in a fight with our nervous system, we're going to lose. So much better to work with it, understand it, support it. And the integrated approach is really, you know, people come presenting all sorts of different things. And what I'm interested in is instead of thinking about this symptom as being separate from that symptom or which I think is often the way that, you know, Western medicine looks at things, you know, the you go, you have a problem with your liver, you go to the liver person, you have a headache, you go to, but um, I'm interested in, in helping people understand that all of their symptoms are related to what's going on in their nervous system. And I think when we think about that, all of these things make sense. And that's, that it's important to have a narrative that I think, uh, makes sense and is really, uh, I'm very interested in thinking about the nervous system is doing the best job it can do. And if we're struggling with migraines or other symptoms or anxiety, um, it's because our nervous system is in its own way trying to keep us safe. And, um, I think that's just a much, for me, that's a much saner way of thinking about things. Uh, much more compassionate way. Um, and I, I absolutely believe it to be true. Well, and I know that you work with um, a wide range of, of clients and, and people from different backgrounds, but I think, you know, the listeners of this show who are athletes and runners themselves will really appreciate that connection to the central nervous system. I mean, so much of what we do is um, embodying how we're feeling in that mind-body connection. Um, and and trying to you know bring our nervous system down when it's appropriate to do so and keep it high when it's also appropriate to do so and that that's really hard to do on your own <laughs> yes yes I, I think it's very interesting I mean I think my experience working with you is um, and I haven't worked with a lot of peak performers although I'm very interested in it because one of the things I learned from you is how good you were at reporting what was going on with your physiology and that in, you know, if I'm using neurofeedback, that's something that makes life much easier for me. Like you could say to me, oh, I, my heart rate is really decreasing. And, you know, that's great. I love that. I love working with people who already have a bit of an understanding of what's going on. Because for many of the people I work with, and this is the challenge, both for them and for me, they, they have been so disconnected. You know, you think about people who have a trauma history, 
or for other reasons, they've had injuries, you know, they have had reasons to stay disconnected from their body. And what we know is that it's better to be connected. We get all sorts of great information from our body and from sensations. And if we don't pay attention to those things, we're losing a lot of important information. And life is, is more difficult. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the neat things about this interview is that we can speak so comfortably with each other because I've been through this experience with you and I'm, I'm excited to share that with our listeners as well. And so I know how it's, how, how our work together has really improved my athletic performance and then also just how I feel in general outside of uh, when I'm not on the track. But when you talk about working with peak performers, and to be clear, peak performers can include anyone striving to be their best at whatever they're doing, right? So for instance, runners who are seeking a personal best, whatever that pace or result may be, what are some of the tangible outcomes that those peak performers could hope to expect from working with you using neurofeedback training? So I think when we think about performance in general, whether it's athletic or academic or other sorts of things, that um, the calmer we are, the better our performance is. There's just no question about it, right? I mean, if we, there are different ways of expressing that, whether it's being in the zone or... But being able to be calm helps us to think more clearly and to activate when we need to activate. And I think maybe that's something you you could also speak to in terms of your experience. So less anxiety, less being in the future, more being in the present, um, and a more embodied, more embodied in general. You know, it's great for athletes. It's great for everybody to be more embodied. The more we're in our body, the better everything works, the better our athletic performance is, the better we recover from, you know, pushing ourselves and training. Um, you know, the, the more likely we are to heal from injuries. All those sorts of things help the body to recover and to do what it needs to do when we want to do, want to do it. I mean, so it seems to me that so much of, you know, being a good athlete is the mental part, right? Is the focus. Um, because dealing with the stress and the expectation and, you know, being able to push yourself and I mean, all of those things that an elite athlete or any athlete, anybody who's training for anything, you know, I talk about this when I, when I work with young adults who are writing exams, it's the same sort of thing. You know, they can prepare and prepare and prepare, but they walk in the door for the exam and their mind goes blank. So how do we help them? to be calm enough to access all of the things that they've learned, which is not really any different than an athletic performance. Because, you know, technically you can be great, right, at anything. You can be a really good athlete. You can be really good at math. You can, But if you can't be calm, then you're going to have a really tough time. And I couldn't really appreciate until we started the process together what kind of an effect that would have for me, for instance, in the middle of a training session. And I think that's one of the things that I found really pleasantly surprising in terms of uh, the the progress that we made together because I was sleeping better after we started working together. I was calmer on a regular basis. I was more focused when I needed to be. But the thing that really um, struck me was when we finished uh, working together um, last year in March, and then I went away to a training camp in April, I was able during that time and moving forward to be so much more present in the middle of great discomfort 
in a hard training session. And Interesting. it was really amazing. Um, and I, in fact, when I was younger in my adolescence, I had exercise induced asthma and I used to rely on a rescue inhaler to help manage that. Now that's improved, I think on its own a little bit over the last several years, but this was the first year where I didn't have to use an inhaler at all in a session. And it occurred to me that so much of what was happening physically when I would get out of control of my breath was likely a result of the anxiety that was going on in my head. And I don't think I've actually shared that with you, Ava, but it's you something I was thinking I, I, on. Yeah, it's very interesting because we we train lots of people with asthma. Um, and we do really well with that in terms of helping the body regulate better and getting rid of asthma, you know, very much like migraines and other things. But that's really interesting, right? You know, it, it, it's um, not being a peak performer myself, at least not athletically. Um, I... I think about this very, very fine line between being charged up enough to do what you need to do and calm enough to do it well, right? And it must just be, it must just turn on a dime where you can be focused and completely on your game or really overstimulated and all over the place. And yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I think that's what, what probably separates people, you know, whether it's athletic performance or other things. Clearly training matters. I mean, all of the things that we know matter, but, but what separates people, I think, is the ability to manage the nervous system in a way that helps it be on when it needs to be on and off when it needs to be off to make it very, very simple, right? So we think about sleep. I mean, uh, for many, many people, you know, sleep disorders are an epidemic now, which probably isn't surprising given how stressful life is, but, you know, that's kind of the bedrock of everything. And that's often the first thing that gets impacted when we feel nervous or, you know, when we're excited about something, think about nervousness and excitement being very related to each other. Um, and, you know, if we're not sleeping well, and you know this probably much better than me, what happens to your body when you sleep and how important that is. I work with lots of people who cognitively are saying, you know, I can't focus during the day because I'm not getting restful sleep. It's funny, one of the assessment questions when we're looking at assessing for neurofeedback is, you know, do you ever wake up feeling rested? And people look at me like, is that a thing? <laughs> do people wake up feeling rested? And I know in my own training, because I, I train myself in neurofeedback and I have for years and I always will, uh, when I started training more regularly, I did not you need an alarm. I would just wake up and it felt like my body was saying, okay, it's time to get up. It's time to get moving. It's fine to be awake now, which is a really nice kind of uh, indicator of, I think, good regulation. What an inspiring thought, I think, for probably anyone listening to this, but especially, again, athletes who um, that that is when we recover the most after breaking our bodies down so much. Um, and, you know, so much of, of what you've just said I think a lot about that term, the optimal state of arousal, and how when you're not in control of that, it becomes sort of cyclical, like you then start getting anxious that you're not less anxious, yeah. and then it compounds, yes. right? Yeah, I mean, I think we can get in our head about things, right? And then as any kind of performer, that that's what really matters. Once you get in your head, I mean, it's like the person who sits down to the exam, and they know they know the stuff, they know they prepared for it. But they're so, they, they've freaked themselves out in a way. Um, and their nervous system just doesn't give them access to that information. So, 
that that really has an impact on people. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's in the running world, I think it's sort of the equivalent of what we call rigging or tying up at the end of a hard race, where you're sort of at that that most exhausted part and you're almost done. But what we often see in the final 100 meters of a track race or the final maybe kilometer of a marathon folks get all this tension in their body. And so they're actually preventing themselves from finishing as fast as they could because they're so desperate to get to the end that they're actually making things worse for themselves. Isn't that interesting? And yeah. this, this concept of being able to run fast through fatigue or through extreme discomfort is, um, is always kind of the gold standard, but a really hard thing to, to do in practice. Right. Well, that, that that's a really interesting metaphor, isn't it? For all sorts of things we do in life where we make things much harder for ourselves than they need to be. We expend way more energy than we need to on things. We make things more complicated. We spend more time and energy worrying about things that haven't happened. I mean, I, I think that's a wonderful metaphor about how we can get in our own way. And if we can get out of our own way, you know, I, I mean, that's that's something I talk about in psychotherapy with people, too. You know, it's interesting that, you know, lots of people will come, let's say, if they're they're grieving and, you know, grieving is a pretty natural process. But what I see over and over again is we have these ideas about how we're supposed to be doing it. So we're spent all, you know, I'm, I'm not where I should be. I should be here. I should this. I should feel this. I shouldn't feel that. I, and that so much of my talking with people around grief, just as an example, is helping them get out of their own way, because if they do that, they'll move through it fine. But, you know, we have these ideas that we, and, and I think this applies to everything, we have these ideas about how we're supposed to do things, how we're supposed to feel, what we're supposed to feel, what we're not supposed to feel. You know, those are complicated issues that have lots to do with how we grew up and messages about things. But it's, I guess it's all about getting out of our own way. Mm -hmm. It's one of the hardest things to do, eh? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't even imagine as an athlete, you know, how challenging that can be and how we can support people to better do that, right? In a way that listens to their body. Because I think one of the other things I see with people that do um, a lot of athletic pursuits is I worry sometimes that they're not very good at listening to their body. I worry that they push through things. I worry that they have this idea that they don't have to listen to their body. And I, uh, that's something that, you know, concerns me a little bit because I, I think then we're getting into some trouble. I guess it's a, it's a little bit like what I said earlier about being in a fight with your nervous system. You know, I think for people that train pretty regularly, if they have an injury and you would certainly know to be able to speak to this, it's really difficult for them not to work out right? It's really hard not to push themselves. It's really hard to sit with things, to think about healing as being an active process that's important. And, you know, it's like, I think about this, I, I read this once, and I, again, you'll be much more familiar with this than I will, but that the, the rest in between the training is as important as the training. I've heard that from so many athletes who say, the best thing I could do for my running was not run more, but sleep more. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really interesting. But again, so much easier said than done because we can understand that intellectually, but then to be able to do it and not even just to, you know, build in the 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 good habits that we know we should, like not being on our screens before bed, making sure that we have lots of time and, and good routines, but but then there, you know, lots of us still get do all those things and get with our head on the pillow and 
don't wake up feeling rested or can't stay asleep through the night. And um, yeah, and then it again, just snowballs and you feel awful for days to come. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Or push through injuries, don't listen to me, you know, messages about pain. I mean, again, that's another thing about not working with the nervous system that you have, that if we, if we respect these messages and ideas, and we don't think that we, we have to be stronger than that, or whatever that means, then I think um, everything works better, right? Whether it's cognitive or, and I, I mean, you could use this example with people who work too much, who come and see me and you know, again, when I'm doing an assessment and I say to people, do you have an issue with headaches? And they say, not really. And I say, well, what's not really? And they say, mm, it's not that much of a problem. Not that often. I say, what's not that often? Which took me a while to learn because at first I thought, oh, not really. Um, they'll say, well, maybe three times a week. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of headaches. And, you know, we, we adapt to our symptoms, which is kind of a good thing in certain ways, but also can be a bad thing because, you know, lots of people I see have all sorts of different pain, emotional, psychological, physical, that they just think is a part of life. And I think the nice thing about learning to regulate better is that a well-regulated nervous system doesn't have those symptoms. Absolutely. Or, or the, you know, the ceiling that you have to reach a certain amount. I mean, eventually, you know, after we train you and you don't have a headache, eventually you might get headaches, but it, so much more has to be happening in order for because you you know you you kind of stress proof the brain a bit, right? I love that stress proof the brain. I know. Well, it's pretty cool. It's very cool. Let's get into the technical side of this because I have been just a huge proponent of our work together, and I tell almost anyone who will listen about what we do, <laughs> but it still is awfully difficult to paint them a picture of exactly what this looks like. So um, I and I, you know, I I can do that having been through it. But as the practitioner, maybe you can take us through what to expect in neurofeedback therapy. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, because I spend a lot of my time trying to figure the best ways of explaining this. So this is what I've come up with so far. When we go to a dance class, there's usually a mirror in the front. And there's a mirror in the front because the teacher says, do this. And uh, we think we're doing this. Our arms are straight. And we look in the mirror and we see our arms are not straight. So we immediately use the feedback that we get from the mirror and we straighten our arms. And that's why we have a mirror there in the first place. So what we're doing, we now have the technology to show the brain its own activity in real time. And the brain uses that to get its act together better, to optimize better. So we're not exactly sure how it does it. There's a number of different theories. Neurofeedback's been around for 30 years, 30, probably 35 now. And there are different kinds of neurofeedback. The kind of neurofeedback that I do is not based on operant conditioning. So we're not, we're not deciding what the brain waves are supposed to look like because every brain is different. But what we're doing is we're letting the brain make its own decision. We're just giving it the information. So again, for me, who really believes that we have the ability to heal ourselves, that, that kind of neurofeedback made sense to me. I don't believe that I should be telling people, oh, you know, your brainwaves don't look the way other people, your age group, you know, it doesn't make sense to me intuitively. But what I do know is that there is a wisdom all its own in the brain. So I'm just facilitating that conversation. So you come in, you sit down, we put electrodes on. My job is to figure out where to put the electrodes and we train the brain in a certain order, which is actually the order that the brain comes online when we're born and developing. 
We train for particular symptoms. So my job is to figure out what kind of nervous system do you have? What are its vulnerabilities? What are the symptoms that you have? What are the things that we can track that will tell us that this nervous system is starting to regulate better? Um, and so information comes out. I essentially have an EEG that is fed through my computer. No information goes in through the electrodes. There's nothing. Um, and then you sit in front of a screen and typically watch Netflix or something. It doesn't matter what you watch. People get very excited about that. And uh, the screen changes based on what's going on with your brain in real time. And the conscious mind is paying attention to the movie. The brain is paying attention to how the screen is changing. And it's learning something. It's learning about how to regulate better. So that's the best explanation that I can come up with um, without it being too technical. That's great. Um, that's very, obviously, it's exactly what I experienced. Um, and then, of course, there was also the, the headphones and the right. sometimes right. the vibrating teddy bear as the well. teddy bear, right. So we there are different kinds of feedback that we're giving. There's visual feedback from the screen. There's auditory feedback. So there's the sound is changing a bit and you're wearing headphones. And then we have a little teddy bear uh, who sits on your lap and is plugged in and that vibrates at certain times. So again, that's giving you tactile feedback. So I feel the need to pause here and give an example from my own experience about what a typical neurofeedback session looked like, because I know it sounds a bit weird for those who have never done it. As Ava said, we would spend the first few minutes talking about how I'd been feeling since my last session. She would then place electrodes at various points on my head based on that self-reporting. Again, you don't feel any sensation from these electrodes because, as Ava explained, no current is going into the brain, only out. And for the next 40 minutes, I would watch Netflix, usually a nature documentary. Have you seen My Octopus Teacher yet? It's great. Anyway, the screen I was watching has a special filter on it that makes the image change in clarity and size, correlating with my brain activity. Same with the volume of the headphones I wore, and the vibrations of that teddy bear I was holding. The whole experience took some getting used to, but it was never uncomfortable or painful and actually became quite relaxing over time. I did this one or two times per week throughout the fall of 2020 and the winter of 2021, and I now see Ava occasionally for check-ins or what she calls top-ups. Part of what was new to me um, about this type of therapy was the intensity of how often you have to go. Mm -hmm. um, and and also that there's sort of an expectation that there should be at some point uh, an end end date um, or at least um, a date in which you can relax that frequency. So maybe you can tell us more about how what, what's happening during that frequency of the sessions. So when we started doing neurofeedback, we were doing it once a week, which is the way we were doing psychotherapy. And then we realized that that didn't really work. So the thing about being a neurofeedback client is that it's, I mean, it's a real collaboration. You know, you and I really worked very closely together in concert. You, you know, my ability to train you was based in part on how well you could report to me what you felt like in the session, in the chair, and also what you felt like in between the sessions. You know, were you sleeping? Did you have a headache? Did you, you know, any anything like that? So I train people, I've trained people every day. I've trained people twice a week. I train some people three times a week. It's, it's nice to train people more frequently because they feel better pretty quickly. 
And um, as we, and feeling better is going to mean we're tracking particular symptoms that they came in that they were concerned about. Uh, once we get in a groove with that, you know, I'm sleeping better, I'm having less headaches, I'm feeling less anxious, for example, um, we, we can begin to extend the sessions out if we want. Certainly before we finish, we want to extend the sessions because I want to know how your brain is holding this new skill that it's learning. Um, you know, we don't train anybody for less than 20 sessions because although they may feel better after three or four or five, the brain will go back to the way it was. It's really repetition that helps the brain learn this. So I have a bunch of people who finish after 20 sessions. I have people that come much longer. I mean, again, that's a conversation that we have together about, are you where you want to be? Does this feel good? Um, is it being maintained between sessions a week, two weeks, three weeks, that kind of stuff. Um, but essentially the, the idea is that once your brain learns this, it holds this. I mean, it, it is a new skill that it will maintain, which is really cool. Very cool. And so my understanding of this through, um, what you've taught me and then through some of just the reading I've done is that basically you're 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 reinforcing neural pathways which is what neuroplasticity is right we can we can um change kind of the 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 shape of our brain and and what's happening within it but that those branches or pathways are relatively weak at the beginning and get strengthened the more often we do the training. Is that accurate to your understanding? Yes, I think as a, as a way of making sense of it. I mean, we are teaching, this is new learning that the brain is doing. And we're capitalizing on the fact that the brain is always paying attention to everything. I mean, one of the metaphors I use for people is because I'm a swimmer. And, you know, if I'm swimming and there's a line on the bottom of the pool, I swim absolutely straight. If I go somewhere and there's no line on the bottom of the pool, I'm off Lord knows where. Um, now when there's a line on the bottom of the pool and my eyes are open, I am not saying, okay, don't pull so hard on your left, pull harder on your right. My brain is doing all of that adjusting absolutely below my level of consciousness. So my brain is working like that all of the time without me being aware of it. And that's really what we're capitalizing on, right? The brain is preoccupied with scanning the environment, figuring out, you know, how do we, how do we walk in a straight line? I mean, you know, our left side isn't as strong as our right side. How do we always walk in a straight line? Right? It's the same thing. I think it's fascinating the things that are happening that we think we need to be conscious about and that we don't. That's such a neat example. I really like that. And I actually, I'm remembering you, I think, sharing that with me early on in our time together, but I'd forgotten about it. And it's a really great way of making sense of it clearly. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. I, I, I mean, you know, because I do this work, I think about my nervous system all the time. I think about what it's paying attention to, how it's feeling, how hard, it, you know, I remember once I started doing some neurofeedback and I went on a trip somewhere and I just remember thinking, wow, this is a huge cognitive load. You know, my brain has to work so much harder because there's a language barrier, because I'm getting lost, because I don't. So I'm always thinking about what's going on with my nervous system, how it's managing, whether it feels overstimulated, what's the right kind of level of stimulation for it, which is kind of an interesting way of seeing the world. And yet it sounds like you are able to be aware of those things without them overwhelming you. <laughs> Absolutely. Also important. Absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, if I'm paying attention to it, I can catch it way, way before I become symptomatic, you know, uh, way before I feel irritable or overwhelmed. I can just think, oh, okay, so 
I'm working really hard here. I need to balance this out with something else. And that's exactly what my experience has been as well, is that there is a heightened awareness and therefore sort of an empowerment to be able to get ahead of some of the less desirable outcomes of how you're feeling, uh, which is really neat because my, you know, I have dealt with a lot of anxiety in my life. And one of the things that I was a bit apprehensive about was, oh, I'm already really self-aware and I don't feel like there's a lot that I can do about it. But this level of self-awareness came with an ability to have a little bit more of um, control or empowerment or something like that. So we see lots of people that are overly focused on their sensations. You know, we see people that are under that, that couldn't tell you if their leg was on fire and people that feel every single thing and it's preoccupying for them. So I think what we want is this sweet spot between, you know, being aware, but having this ease with it, you know, so that, you know, normal, healthy people have anxiety. There are times when I'm more anxious and less anxious and anxiety is wired in. It's supposed to be there. It can be helpful for certain things. But, you know, I think what we want to, what we have when we're better regulated is this ease of moving through different states and not struggling so much with it. So it isn't just about having more awareness because it is true that too much awareness can be preoccupying, right? And distracting. And it's the ease with that. Oh, you know, I'm feeling a bit more anxious today. Well, that's okay. What's going on? Or maybe not even what's going on, but what would support my nervous system through this? You know, those are things I think we all need to be thinking about because we live in a world that is not very well suited to the kind of nervous systems we have. It's busy, it's noisy, it's crowded, it's, it asks a lot from us all the time. And because I think that's normal, we don't really recognize that. That's a really great segue into my next question, which is why this type of therapy, neurofeedback, is different from other traditional forms of therapy. Um, for instance, talk therapy, and and you and I, there is a there is a, you know a, an element of that, as you mentioned at the beginning and end of each of our sessions. But I used to go and into um, into an office and spend an hour speaking with someone, which had its benefits. Um, but this is very different from that. So why is th- why is this type of therapy different and perhaps effective in a different way? Mm-hmm. That's such a good question. So I think that historically therapists were trained to do talk therapy, and if it didn't work, we did more talk therapy. And um, I think we now know through all sorts of research and neuroscience and other things, that there are things that respond really well to talk therapy. And there are things that do not. And in fact, not only does talk therapy not help, but it probably um, makes things worse. And that would be the case for anybody with trauma. So I think we didn't have other options. It's like, you know, that expression, if all you have is a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. Um, I think now we have a way of accessing the nervous system that doesn't require people to talk about things. I also think that, you know, not everything is a cognitive. I just got off the phone with a consultation with someone who's been in talk therapy for three or four times, which is typically the kind of client that I end up getting. You know, they've tried and it's not that it hasn't been helpful. You know, we feel less alone. We may feel like we have somebody on our side. Those things are lovely. But is it going to change your symptoms and your nervous system? No, it really isn't. It is not. It doesn't deal directly with the nervous system. And things that happen to us live in our bodies. 
They live in our nervous systems. They're, they're not cognitive. You know, it was the gentleman I was just speaking to said, I've seen three or four therapists and they say to me, you know, you need to get over your past. And I'm thinking, well, I'd be out of business, first of all, if that happened. And what a thing to say. It's because why would anybody choose not to get over their past, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So um, talk therapy can be really helpful. I still do lots of it. I, I love doing talk therapy, but I love the fact that I have a tool that can du- directly impact someone's nervous system in a way that five or six years of talk therapy might not. And also, it's a great time to be a therapist because we have other tools too. You know, we have something called heart rate variability training, which is great. We have EMDR. We have something called the Safe and Sound Protocol, which is an auditory program that accesses the, accesses the nervous system in an auditory way. So um, I love that we're not just doing more of what we know how to do because sometimes it doesn't work. And so it's better for us to be able to say, okay, you know, if my clients had talk therapy two or three times and they still don't feel any different and I understand why they don't, I have a way of making sense of why they don't, then I am delighted to be able to say, you know what, we have these other options now and this is how they work and this is the kind of relief. I mean, it is so tremendously exciting to work with people that are struggling with symptoms and have struggled with symptoms for years and to be able to just see them getting better and see them, you know, living in their bodies with ease and making friends with their nervous system. And it is such a, it's such profound work in that way. Well, and as as someone who's been on the receiving end of that, I can absolutely corroborate and appreciate everything you've just said. It's, um, it's really game changing. Yeah, Um, that's a good way of saying it. Yeah. And, and it has been for, um, you know, it's obviously, this is, an unprecedentedly difficult time that we're all in. And I think it's interesting the timing that we started working together because I had underlying generalized anxiety and then I had anxiety because of the pandemic. And then I was also trying to qualify for my first Olympics. And so we were managing a lot of different things all at once. And I've really learned to be, um, as I said, a, a calmer, more aware person in my day-to-day life. But truly, Ava, I think that one of the main ingredients for how I got to Tokyo this summer was our work together. And I don't feel like that's an overstatement, which is incredible and, and a true example of, of how effective this that's, can be. So I thank you for that. That is really lovely. And, you know, that would make sense to me, right? It, it, it would make sense that all of those things are just working better, that part of neurofeedback is also about synchronizing and timing in the brain, right? So that, that really matters as an athlete. You know, just again, the experience I've had in so many of your patients, uh, it's, it is really game changing. And, and I hope that more and more Canadians can have access to the work, the kind of work that we've done and, and the great I benefits. Hope so too. Well, it, yeah. it was a pleasure and it is a pleasure to hear and to have seen how you responded. Um, that's part of what makes this work so incredibly rewarding for me. Thank you, Ava, so much for joining us on the ShakeOut podcast this week. And I'm sure I'll see you in your office uh, in the next couple of weeks or so. (laughs) I hope so. I should know before we go that while I found neurofeedback training to be highly effective, it is far from the only helpful type of therapy out there. Everyone's needs are different. 
If you or someone you know is struggling, we strongly encourage you to reach out to a mental health professional or follow the links in our show notes for online resources. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Shakeout Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our show. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a review. Thanks for tuning in. Take good care and we'll chat again soon.